Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. If you don't like a bit of road rage with your daily commute, I'd advise you not to move to Ulaanbaatar or Moscow. Karachi and Lagos would also be bad bets, according to a new index compiled by a UK car parts supplier, Mr Auto. The index pulls together a whole lot of data on things like congestion, road safety, the quality of infrastructure and the number of road rage incidents to decide which are the best and worst cities in the world for drivers. The bad news for India is that two of its cities, Mumbai and Kolkata, feature in the bottom three. If you want to find out who comes top out of a hundred world cities, well, you'll have to wait till a bit later. I'll be talking through the results and the more serious lessons with Bloomberg reporter Zoe Schneeweiss. But first, the future of China and its technology, both of which are going to feature prominently at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, which gets underway on November 20th in Beijing. We touched on this a little while ago, you'll remember when I was in Singapore, The idea that a more antagonistic relationship between the US and China could drive a technological fault line through the global economy, with countries and businesses being forced to choose which side they were on. But of course, all that assumes that China can start developing world-beating technologies that don't depend on the US. In a minute, I'll talk to Bloomberg's chief economist and old China hand, Tom Orlick, about China's plans to dominate the technologies of the future and how they might have been affected by Donald Trump. But first, Bloomberg Economy reporter Carolyn Look has this report from Beijing and Guangzhou. Here in China, American ideas, brands and technology are everywhere. Strolling down the street in my neighborhood in Beijing, I can see teenagers wearing Nike, stepping out of Buick minivans, on their way to Starbucks while riveted to their Apple iPhones. But will that change if the confrontation between China and the US morphs into a battle to control the technologies of the future? To help find an answer, I've come to talk to local business people at the Canton Fair. It's a massive trade show for Chinese exporters that takes place twice a year in Guangzhou. How massive? The space is equivalent to 185 soccer fields, with some 25,000 exhibitors and 180,000 foreign buyers. There's everything here, from Bluetooth earbuds, to solar-powered refrigerators, to portable saunas. This is Mr. Zhang, who hails from the surrounding Guangdong province. He is a sales manager at a company that makes large LED screens and smart TVs. He would only give us his last name. All around him in his booth are his company's televisions, which rely on, you guessed it, the Android operating system from American tech giant Google. We use some Google and YouTube features in some of our products, and especially for products that are sold overseas. If it is cut off, it could affect our manufacturing and production. Mr. Zhang feels vulnerable. Earlier this year, the Trump administration blacklisted Huawei technologies big Chinese maker of telecom equipment. It means that people who buy Huawei's new smartphones won't get the latest versions of Android. For companies lower down on the technology chain, that's also a problem. 
If the tech confrontation widens and draws them in too, they could also lose access to these high-tech parts and operating systems that China can't replicate. The result could mean the end for some businesses. This is what people mean when they talk about a silicon curtain descending between the U.S. and China. We are very concerned about this trade war between China and the U.S. and if it involves issues with Google, because we don't have anything better to replace it. For people who need this stuff around the world, we don't have a better product that can replace it. In the worst-case scenario, would China be hopelessly left behind without American technologies? Or could it adapt its own innovations to fill the gap? The answer to that depends on which sector you're looking at. That's according to Nicole Peng, an expert in Hong Kong at Canalys, a consulting firm. For some emerging technologies, like cloud computing and AI, China is actually a leading player on the global stage. When it comes to some hardware, especially when it comes to chipset manufacturing, and then some key materials for some consumer devices, for example, then we know that U.S. as well as some other countries, they're holding um, the patent and IP and then also the know-how, as well as the um, capability to develop an R&D and also, uh, more importantly, uh, the, the human resources. The key engineer uh, people on this industry, they've been working on this um, area for a very long time, and that's a very strong foundation. In certain areas, it definitely would take China and Chinese company um, many years, say five to ten years, to, to be able to um, get to the level right now the U.S. company is. At Huawei, plans are well underway to survive and grow, even without access to U.S. technology. The company is developing its own smartphone operating system known as Harmony OS. That may not be an ideal solution for now, but the tech giant's founder, Yuan Zhengfei, doesn't seem to expect the confrontation between China and the U.S. will last forever. Here's what he said at a Bloomberg event this month. We have the ability to survive. However, this is not what we pursue. We have no intention, and I personally don't support doing everything, every innovation ourselves. But if we have to do it, then we have a temporary approach that we'll work on it ourselves. However, this is not our long-term strategy. Now we have no problem to sustain our development. Back at the Canton Fair, we talked to business people who also offered a nuanced perspective. Turat Muslum came to China from Syria 12 years ago. He and a business partner set up a company that makes home automation products. Their Wi-Fi-connected smart home systems help you control your air conditioning and your lighting and even your curtains. But look inside their products and you'll find a lot of microchips and other components imported from the U.S. 40% to be exact. But Muslum says he's not so worried. We, there is a lot of alternatives. If we couldn't get this from the U.S. or from China, there is a lot of suppliers and they are ready to uh, supply to China or any other way. Uh, nobody could now put a pressure or a sanction against one country. So how much decoupling will actually happen? 
In the last few years, we've seen a surge in barriers that includes tariffs, foreign investments, even access to Chinese researchers and scientists in the U.S. But the country's economies are still extremely intertwined. Here's Scott Kennedy, an expert on the U.S.-China economic relationship at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. If Chinese would see the negotiations with the United States as an opportunity to liberalize their economy and make it more productive and see it less as a threat that challenges their opportunity to develop and rise, they could take advantage of this and there would there'd be adjustments in the nature of supply chains and the type of relationships we have, but it wouldn't be anything close to decoupling. It'd be a reorganization that would benefit China tremendously. At the same time, China's government under President Xi Jinping is going to do all it can to reduce the country's reliance on foreign technology suppliers. If Donald Trump's goal really is to limit China's rise, then his current approach is making them try all the harder to build the technology of tomorrow. Even Mr. Zhang believes that with a little bit of time, China might just be okay. I believe that as time goes by, perhaps in 10 to 15 years, Chinese companies will be able to have business that could compete with the U.S. top technology companies. That is not to say that we will replace them, but that Chinese companies will be able to compete with them in the market fairly. So far, I think we're a bit lagged behind. And in the future, I think we can be as good. Give it some time. For Bloomberg News, I'm Carolyn Luck. So that's the view of of China and technology on the ground. Uh, But for a longer view, I thought it would be worth having a quick chat to our chief economist here at Bloomberg, Tom Orlick, who's in Washington but spent 11 years in Beijing and has published one, soon to be two, books on the Chinese economy. Um, Thanks for joining us, Tom. You've you've listened to that report there. I mean, it's an issue we keep coming back to. Uh, How is China going to navigate this next stage of its economic development? And what are the implications going to be um, for the for the rest of the world. Do you think that the trade wars, trade tensions we've had over the last couple of years have changed the way the Chinese leadership is is thinking about that? So there's a couple of things which are happening to uh, to China at the same time, Stephanie. So the first one is that the drivers of growth that they've relied on traditionally, um, very, very low cost labor, very, very extensive uh, investment in expanding the capital stock. Um, These drivers are running out of steam. Labor is expensive, the workforce is shrinking, and the capacity to grow by investment is just much less than it used to be. Now, as that's happening, uh, China needs to find new sources of growth. Um, And the obvious thing to do is to rely more on the the rest of the world economy. So as the domestic drivers dry up, China wants to export more and it wants to accelerate the process of, well, friends call it technology transfer um, and enemies call it technology theft from the rest of the world to drive increases in productivity. So the challenge for China is that just at the moment when the domestic drivers uh, are fading, the scope to turn to the global economy 
for a leg up, for an acceleration in terms of growth, uh, has just become much weaker uh, because of that trade war with the United States. And I mean, we've we talked we've talked about it over over the months. And in fact, when I was in in Singapore a couple of weeks ago, there was some some concern about this. I mean, the arguments with the U.S. over Huawei over um, the sort of technological side of China's development. I mean, they're not they're not going away. But when you hear, um, as in that piece, when you hear them talking about how they're going to replicate these uh, U.S. technologies and become less and less dependent on them, you know, from your experience in China, do you think they'll manage to do that? Do you think? I mean, do you think they are they are really accelerating their efforts to do innovation, and do you think they will succeed? So, I think the the, the first thing to say is that if the silicon curtain falls, if China and the US do separate their technology sectors, there's going to be an immediate blow to both sides. You've got companies like Google, like Apple, here in the United States, who in one way or another are deeply enmeshed um, with the Chinese technology sector. And on the Chinese side, you have an entire electronics manufacturing supply chain that in one way or another is dependent on imported U.S. technology, uh, imported U.S. ideas um, and components. So if you separated the two, there would be an immediate and crushing blow to both sides. Um, the question looking further forwards is, could China close the gap? Could China do itself what it's currently relying on U.S. firms to do, and in a sense, it's kind of it's imponderable, um, or possibly the kind of question you'd really want a kind of a technology expert rather than an economist um, <laughs> talking about. Don't um, do yourself down. No, Tom. I know uh, we'll do healthcare next, and then we'll do genetics, and I'll, I'll have an opinion <laughs> on all of them. Um, but I think there's a few things which which would make me think that China's chances of closing the gap are actually rather high. Um, so, firstly. China's just making absolutely enormous investments in accelerating its research and development capacity. It's investing more than anyone else in the world apart from the United States in R&D. It's graduating more science and technology graduates than anyone else in the world. If we look at how it's doing, um, there's an index called the, uh, the Global Innovation Index. It's kind of the benchmark in terms of how countries are doing and broadly understood on their innovation program. China is accelerating up the rankings um, on the Global Innovation Index. In the latest score, they come in at number 14. Uh, that's ahead of Japan. I think the idea that China is already a more innovative economy than Japan is pretty striking. Um, and then the third reason why I think that they would have some hope of closing the gap is that the US is not the only show in town when it comes to technology. Yes, in Silicon Valley, in the universities of the Ivy League, uh, there are some world-beating scientists and world-beating innovators, um, but they're not the only ones in the world. There's also Germany. There's also Japan. There's also Korea. Um, there's also the United Kingdom. Um, and if there's one thing which the United States has not done very well in the last two or three years, it's bring these other countries with it in a kind of alliance of the willing uh, or coalition of the willing. Uh, and if there's one thing that China is extremely good at doing, it's taking advantage of those breaks in relations between other countries, that, that competitive, the competitive nature of the relationship between other countries 
to get deals done and make sure it can continue to advance towards the technology frontier. And it also seems to be able to use its scale uh, to its advantage in a way that other big countries have not always been able to do. I mean, I remember, you know, one reads about the failed development strategies of the 50s and 60s, the F big effort at sort of import substitution in India and Brazil, um, where there was this kind of idea that if you if you had a big market, that was all you really needed to do and you could close yourself off from the world and you would be able to match anything that the US achieved. I mean, they... Those countries famously were not able to do that. But somehow China has managed to make that it's the size of its domestic market a real springboard. Yeah, I think that's right, Stephanie. And, and clearly there are examples, and you mentioned Brazil and India, of, of big countries where size hasn't been the determining factor. Um, but size clearly is an advantage. Uh, and when you combine size with a relatively efficient government, um, with a relatively skilled workforce um, and with a state-owned banking system which can provide the finance businesses require, uh, I think scale does become extremely important. Um, and in a sense, that is why China presents the threat it does to the United States. Because if you take a, an innovation, whether it's a Chinese innovation or a US innovation or a Japanese innovation, and you plug it into the Chinese business sector, then because of the scale of the Chinese market, China will be able to produce at a significantly larger scale than its foreign competitors. Um, and when it does that, the risk is that whether or not that's an indigenous Chinese innovation or an innovation which has been borrowed or paid for from, from the US or elsewhere, it's the Chinese firm that's going to become the global champion. Um, and it's the foreign rivals that are going to be left scrambling for scraps. We should talk a little bit about the, the short term, because actually one of the things that's striking about the slowdown in the Chinese economy um, that many people worry about uh, is that the import growth has slowed particularly sharply. Um, when you're just looking short term, is there a risk that, that China will turn out to be even weaker than we thought next year and possibly be the, the last straw in terms of the global recovery? Uh, so there's always been this concern about China's growth data. Uh, I mean, uh, to put it charitably, uh, China's economic data represents a compromise between hmm. reality and political message management. Um, and so there's always been a question about whether we can trust the GDP data or not. Um, now, import data um, has a kind of intuitive appeal uh, as an alternative gauge of what's going on in the economy. Uh, it tells us about consumers. Uh, it tells us about businesses. Uh, it also tells us about the export sector because a lot of China's exports include substantial components and parts which they purchase from Korea and Japan and elsewhere. Um, so imports uh, are an important alternative, alternative gauge of what's going on in China's economy. Uh, and right now, uh, they present a picture of, of startling weakness. Uh, they're contracting. So our view, um, and we look at a broad range of China's data, we look at GDP, we look at imports, we look at things like electricity production and rail freight and the pace of bank lending. Um, our view is that, yes, imports are extremely weak and there are some serious problems in China's export sector. We don't think the overall economy is anything like contract, anything close to contraction. Uh, and we don't think that's likely going forwards. 
in large part because China's policymakers retain uh, the means and the motivation to provide sufficient stimulus to keep the economy growing. Well, I'm excited to say we will get more insight into that from Chinese policymakers and others at the New Economy Forum next week, where you and I will both be, Tom. So uh, watch this space. Thanks, Stephanie. Now I'm going to turn seamlessly to the 2019 Driving Cities Index. Which city in the world is best for drivers? Well, the prize goes to Calgary in Canada, with runner-up rosettes for Dubai, Ottawa, Bern in Switzerland, and, wait for it, El Paso, Texas. So those are the winners in the overall rankings. And if you look at just the individual measures, New York, Singapore, Tokyo and London all come top for public transport. Manchester in England, interestingly, comes top for safety, with the smallest number of road fatalities per 100,000 inhabitants. It's followed by Stockholm and Oslo and Vienna, maybe less surprising. The most dangerous cities on that measure of fatalities are Lagos, not surprising, and Orlando, Florida, which I guess is probably less surprising if you live in Orlando, Florida. Well, we're going to talk a bit more about this and maybe the bit more serious conclusions you can draw um, with Zoe Schneeweiss, our economy editor here in London, previously of Vienna and Zurich, relevant uh, to this conversation. Um, I was struck, Zoe, when I was looking through this report. I mean, in a sense, it's not surprising, but there is a clear north-south divide. I mean, on the top you have Calgary, Bern, Dusseldorf, and then towards the bottom there's Moscow, Lagos, Mumbai. I mean, why is it that cities in developing countries are struggling on all these measures? Infrastructure here does seem to be key. Typically, we're experiencing a substantial increase in individual wealth, and that in turn has led to an increase in car ownership. At the same time, cities haven't adapted their infrastructure to facilitate that boost in cars. And they also haven't invested in public transport to give people a different way of getting around. Yeah, and it sort of tells you, I guess, the other thing that we, and it's one of the reasons why they are going to be talking about urbanisation and cities at the the New Economy uh, Forum next week, that when we talk about the recipe for economic success these days, we are often talking about these super successful conurbations. You know, there's these parts of, of countries that are doing fantastically well. And so the recipe for success, if you like, is to create these very livable places. And you have, and you have competition between cities now uh, almost uh, more important than competition between countries. So what is it that, you know, we've talked about the cities that are not doing well. What are cities doing right that we can see in this, uh, in this index? Again, infrastructure is the key <laughs> measure here. Um, it, nowadays, it often feels like being able to get around a city without a car is the real sign of a city's prosperity. Um, my, uh, our colleague Justin Fox pointed out on this podcast just a month ago that uh, the U.S. census data suggests that public transport is now increasingly used by more affluent people. So when I think about the cities that I've lived in, um, they all have had incredible public transport systems. And in two of them, in Zurich and in London now, I'm in the luxurious position of not even having to use them. I can walk. So cities that are walkable, cities that are approachable, cities where you can afford to live near where you work 
or if you work further away where there is an easy way of getting to work, that does increasingly make cities more livable and make people want to stay in these cities. You've got a large number of people will now hate you that they've heard that you can walk to work in the centre in the centre of London. But uh, I certainly enjoy. I quite often cycle to work. It strikes me though. I mean, there's definitely a downside to having a fantastically successful city, and we have seen it in spades in the UK. There's so much concentration of wealth and economic success in the southeast of England and particularly around London. Um, there is a great lot of resentment outside the southeast uh, for the, that success and a feeling not entirely unjustified that people in the southeast don't understand the struggles that people in the rest of the country have had, which I think did feed importantly into that uh, into that Brexit vote. And of course, most people in London voted Remain. Uh, it's going to be a test, isn't it, Zoe, the next few years, if and when Britain does leave the EU. London still has a lot of the advantages we see in this index of infrastructure, livability, but it won't have those kind of legal advantages of being in the EU. And we see some people have already had to move because of those changes. And the reason that I can walk to work is because people have left <laughs> and made flats more affordable, at least for me in this case. Um, no, but London is an amazing city and I think people will be torn whether to actually leave. Some of them, of course, will have to leave. Frankfurt, Luxembourg are becoming banking hubs and that is in part because of Brexit and because certain bank functionality will have to be conducted from within the European Union. At the same time, when I look at the infrastructure in those cities, I've never had to miss a flight in London, huge as it may be, I certainly have in Frankfurt. <laughs> yes, and I'm headed to Berlin tomorrow, and that's another rather challenging airport, so we, we shall see. Zoe, thank you uh, thank you very much. I did a piece once uh, that was around the idea that Britain should let London go, that everyone would be better off if uh, London had formed its own city-state with its own priorities. And what was amazing about it was how popular it was among people outside London and inside London. Maybe it was a, a bit of a precursor to that to that Brexit vote. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week and we will be in Beijing. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. For more news and analysis during the week from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter, and you can also find me on at my Stephanomics. The story in this episode was reported by Carolyn Look, Miao Han, and Yinan Zhao. It was written by Carolyn Look and Jeff Black, produced by Magnus Hendrickson, and edited by Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks to Tom Orlick, Zoe Schneeweiss, Gao Yuan, Stephen Engel, Bobby Islam and Rosalind Chin. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.